reading, if you don't mind, please. Let's turn to Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 24. Again, if you're able, stand. If not, that's fine. Uh, chapter 24. And then we're also going to turn, we're actually going to only read one of these two passages for now, and then we're going to go back and read the other. Matthew 5. Let's read uh, God's Word first, Matthew 5, verse 31. Jesus said, Whomever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then we'll turn to Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 24, 5 and 6, section 5 and 6, that's page 934. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after a divorce to carry, uh, to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. Section 6. Although the corruption of man may be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient to dissolve the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it are not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Please be seated. Now let's uh, notice first that I titled this message, Lawful Divorce. And the reason I put it, the title as lawful divorce is because that's what the confession of faith defines in this section 5 and section 6. It gives us what are the reasons and the, uh, the causes for lawful divorce. Um, this title is very fitting and very necessary for today because many divorces are not lawful. Um, the conclusion of section 6 describes the root cause of the problem. Section 6 says... The persons concerned in it, that is, the divorce proceedings, and I'm supplying some words to fill in here. Um, the persons concerned in it, the divorce proceedings, should not be left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. And that's the problem, isn't it? They're left to their own wills and their own minds in their own case here. And that should remind us of the times of the judges. You remember the times of the judges uh, of Israel uh, when the Holy Spirit gave that author the condemnation that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was what was wrong in the time of the judges. People did what was right in their own eyes. And the reason we have divorce at the level we do is because people are doing what is right in their own eyes rather than what God's Word says. Now, I'm going to introduce you to some, a website that I don't hope any of you ever use. Um, 
but it's actually a website that is a, I, w- I would say it's a legal assistance website for those pursuing divorce. But the reason I'm citing it is because it gives a little research and historical background concerning divorce. Now, some of this I don't have in your notes, um, but it says that cultural shifts in attitude and behavior over the past 75 years has helped to redefine the meaning of marriage. In turn, these shifting beliefs have also normalized and largely eliminated the stigma that once shrouded divorce. There was a stigma for having a divorce that was not lawful. Uh, It says, the idea of marriage as a lifetime commitment has changed significantly and gradually evolved to an emphasis on individual fulfillment and satisfaction. Over time, the United States has transitioned from a country wherein the idea of divorce was unheard of and building of a a successful marriage was considered a top priority to a place of one of the highest divorce rates in the world. In spite of the increased prevalence of marital education, that's premarital counseling, marriage counseling and family therapists, divorce is an ever-constant reality in society. Even as the overall divorce rate is uh, discussed among ages 16, that's kind of young, 16 to 65, approximately 45% of marriages still end in divorce in the United States. That's, this is from 2021, just last year. So they've organized a list, and this is in your notes, a list of the 13 top reasons uh, from our analysis and surveys that um, at least uh, report the reasons for divorce. So this is a thir- 13 top reasons. I'm going to go over those. I've underlined some. The ones that I've underlined, I believe, are the, the legal ones, or that could be the biblical grounds. So the first one. Conflict, arguing, um, breakdown in the relationship, um, in this conflicting or arguing that can't be reconciled, um, or they think they cannot be reconciled. Um, two would be a lack of commitment. Three, infidelity or extramarital affairs. Four, distance in the relationship or a lack of physical intimacy. Um, communication problems between partners, domestic violence, verbal, physical, or emotional abuse by a partner, um, realize, realization that one's spouse has different values or morals, substance abuse or alcohol addiction, the absence of romantic intimacy or love, one party not carrying their weight in the marriage, financial problems or debt, marrying too young, lack of shared interests or compatibility between partners. Now, a lot of these problems and a lot of these reasons for divorce can be summarized in this, in this statement. I want a divorce just because I don't love him or her anymore. That's one of the main reasons, and that can carry over for many of these sub- these reasons here. So in other words, if a couple falls in love, you could say falls in infatuation maybe, and then just like they fell in love, they fell out of love because I just don't love them anymore. 
Well, someone hurt each other's feelings, and they said some really mean things, and they didn't reconcile biblically, so therefore the hard feelings stayed, and therefore they don't love each other anymore because they never reconciled because of the hard feelings. That's just one example that could be the case. So section 5 of um, the Westminster Confession goes on to say that adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. What's it talking about here? That's talking about engagement. Um, Obviously, according to this language, getting out of, of an engagement was a lot more difficult in times past than it is today. Now, people just call up, they, they call up the other person and they say, here's your ring back, and it, the engagement's broken off. But here, you, you couldn't just break off an engagement in a light fashion. You had to have a, a just cause to break off an engagement. And it's, it says that uh, if someone committed sexual infidelity, one of the members of the contract were surely uh, given legal right and moral ground to break it off. Section 5 goes on, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce or to have legal proceedings for divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So again here, the language is the innocent party in such a case can sue out or go through the legal and ecclesiastical means to obtain a divorce. And that's why I cited Matthew 5. Jesus gives us the justification for this. Now, in the notes here, I'm citing the, the New King James Version um, because I, I, I kind of rather the word sexual immorality than, than unchastity. But um, uh, Matthew 5, 31 through 32 says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the saying was at the time. But I say to you, Jesus correctly interprets the law and says, whoever divorces his wife for any reason um, except sexual immorality, which that word there could be translated fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, the word there, fornication, is more precise than the word just plain sexual immorality, I believe. Because fornication would be having sexual relations outside um, of the covenant of marriage, which I kind of wonder why it doesn't use the word divorce here. But I think if someone just says, well, let's, I, I want a divorce because my husband is sexually immoral. Someone could really press this issue too far. Well, what do you mean he's sexually immoral? Well, he was watching a movie and it was R-rated and there was a bad scene in that movie. And, he, and he, instead of walking out of the room or fast-forwarding it, he watched it. Well, I, I, would, I would say maybe, you know, maybe we could try to convince people that it's, we should stay away from watching stuff that we shouldn't watch. But that's, if that's the case of divorce, everybody would be divorced for stuff, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just have it there. I think what it's talking about is the actual committing of, a, of, of someone having relations with another person outside of the bond of marriage. In other words, a third person is involved who's not the spouse. Now, I've heard of other people say there could be other reasons. What if, the man, what if there's a person who's um, 
who's involved in doing a whole lot of, um, let's just say, some very heinous um, pornography of some sort. And he's doing it for years, and he's, he's got other people involved. He doesn't really physically do anything, but it's, it's on the computers. You could say that if, if there's proof of somebody doing some very illegal sexually moral action, even though there was no actual performance of a, an, a physical act, you could make a ground for that. And we're going to go over some of that, how that could work itself out. Um, again, um, larger catechism 138 regarding what are the duties required in the seventh commandment. One of those duties is conjugal love. It means if you're married, God requires conjugal love. That means that you have to have relations with your spouse. And if a person denies it for an extended period of time, that is a denial, or that is a transgression, you could say, of the seventh commandment. Um, the spouse who's denying the other spouse has committed sexual immorality in the sense of denying the, vow, the wedding vows for sexual relations. It should be a serious matter. Um, let's uh, move on a little bit uh, down further low, uh, below. Um, so if, if there is a guilty person involved here that's committed sexual immorality, it gives the other person a right to pursue a divorce and marry another. Now, this is a right that a person has. Let's just say the, it's two people, uh, maybe they're both in church, and one person commits adultery with another individual. But there's true repentance. That person is sorrowful for their sin and what they've done, and they hate their sin, and they've made a commitment never to do anything of that sort again. You don't have to divorce in that case. Yes, you have a right to divorce. But in God's, God's sight, if, if you want to have mercy on that other individual and you want to continue to stay in the marriage and, do, and keep the marriage for the sake of the children, you don't have to pursue that right. You can still stay together. Uh, this uh, sentence in section 5, again, it doesn't mandate that the innocent party has to pursue that divorce. Now, in the other situation is what if there's a stubborn persistence? Um, I have a family member whose spouse did that. He said, I'll forgive you for what you've done. Well, she said, you're just trying to control me. That's what she said. That was instead of saying, really, you'll forgive me? How loving of you. You are a fine, loving husband that you would forgive me. But instead, she didn't want to be told what to do. She wanted to keep on going around and messing around. In a case like that, bye-bye, bye-bye, we're done. You know, they're persistent and stubborn, and they don't want to repent of that particular sin. And you really don't really have much of a choice but to get a divorce. Section 6 um, goes on and gives us another reason for divorce. Although the corruption of man um, be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is sufficient uh, of dissolving the bond of marriage. 
So when we combine sections five, we combine section six, what we're seeing is the Westminster Assembly is using scripture to interpret scripture. Jesus gives a reason, Paul gives a reason, and then they both combine together and say, here, there's two reasons. Again, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, uh, Jesus says fornication, sexual immorality, or adultery is the only just cause. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16, Paul gives a reason for um, abandonment being a just cause. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I am. But if they cannot, uh, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Here, verse 11, uh, 10 and 11, he's saying the same thing Jesus said. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, a question that I always had perhaps you've questioned as well, is why didn't Jesus mention abandonment himself? Why did Jesus only give one reason, and one reason alone, which was sexual uh, infidelity? And I believe it has to do with two different audiences. Jesus is, is, was preaching in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 to Jewish people. There was no mixed marriages there. It was all Jews married to Jews. Paul's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles, some of which have come to faith, and many of which the other spouse has not come to faith. So you have these mixed marriages of believer and unbeliever. Whereas Jesus was addressing a, a, a group that were all believers, husband and wife. They were all Jews raised in the, uh, the, in the religion of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here we have pagans married to Christians, pagan wife, believing husband, and vice versa. So I, I, I think that's the reason why Jesus doesn't address it is because it was, a, it was not really an issue to the audience that Jesus was talking to. Here, Paul is dealing with a different audience. Now, what's very interesting, I think, is in verse 14 of that passage, 
that it seems to be for the sake of the children that it's good for the for the the two to stay together because I believe that they uh, they are the, one of the main reasons. Now, I, I'm just going to give you this as an uh, a side issue that I think it's a rather complex. But Dr. J. Adams pointed out, and I would have never known this unless studying this from Dr. J. Adams. But he pointed out that First Corinthians seven could apply to two persons in the church. Who are both professing believers. How is that? Isn't one an unbeliever and one's a believer? Well, if one person falls into some sin and is disciplined by the church and is excommunicated, he's no longer, he or she is no longer considered a believer. So then you have a mixed marriage. They go from both professing Christians to then a mixed marriage, believer and and an unbeliever. And then if that unbeliever, though excommunicated, wants to stay in the marriage, they should stay together and remain married. But if that unbeliever then wants to leave, this, the wife has a fair, or the wife or the husband has a fair reason to divorce and then marry another. Let's just go through an example of this. Well, what if somebody in the church has an issue with maybe um, gambling to the point where they, they're not able to pay for their home and they're gambling away all of their goods so that he's not being a a provider for his family and he's causing them to go to become destitute well if the problem persists the church could talk to him about the the issue and if he continues to go into that into that issue um, he could be disciplined for by the church for something of that sort Or, or the same thing goes with with extreme drug or alcohol abuse if they're letting drug and alcohol abuse wreck their life and the, and the marriage, and they're not repenting of that, they should be disciplined. And then that leads that person to no longer be considered a believer by the church. And then you have, again, the mixed marriage situation in 1 Corinthians 7. Section 6, again, closes uh, with these words. The person's concerned in it, in what? In the divorce proceedings, they shouldn't be left to their own wills and discretion in their own cases. There's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. And I, what's one thing I love about Presbyterianism, it's not one man deciding the issue for you. You've got elders and a pastor, and you have other wise people in the church that can give you counsel. You can get counsel from other married couples in the church who can who can give you recommendations on how to help in your marriage. Godly leaders, again, should be among the number of those wise counselors that you are pursuing if you have marriage trouble. Um, well, people notice that we began with that quote from, um, what's, the, what's that, that website was, uh, it's so easy or whatever, make it easier or whatever. So one of the things they said was that in today's society, divorce is still over 40%, even though people have lots of marriage counsel, even though they have premarital counseling, they have family therapy, you name what they have. But you, what's the problem there? What's the standard for secular counseling? Is it God's word? No, it's not. They don't, 
they're compromising on, on, they don't care really what God's word says. They care what their psychological mumbo jumbo stuff says. And one of the highest motivations in psychological counseling is self-esteem. So then they might say, well, what really matters in this situation is your individual fulfillment and satisfaction. That's more important than what God's word says. Your individual fulfillment and satisfaction. Therefore, they would rather you be satisfied and fulfilled and happy, even if it means a divorce. So I believe part of the problem is that the secular counseling movement is promoting the divorce uh, rather than trying to stop people from it. Again, what, what are the tools they have to work with? We have the tools given in Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is a much better means of instruction on how to teach husband and wife to get along, to love each other. What does love mean? Holy Scripture is what gives us the Holy Spirit. Once we come to faith in Christ, we, we obtain the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. We could be uh, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, being loving, joyous, patient, kind, and gentle, having self-control. One of the absolute most important gifts of the Spirit for marriage is self-control. You want to say X, Y, and Z because it comes up in your mind? Does it mean that you should say it all the time? Speak your, do, you, do you really want to say the first thing that comes upon your, your mind? If you do, you're going to end up with some real big trouble in your marriage. <laughs> but we, in God's grace, as God works in our hearts and minds as Christians, He gives us the, the means, He gives us the instruction, He gives us His Holy Spirit. But again, if, if, if anyone ever has problems when difficulty with marriage, pursue help from those in, in the church that you know and love and trust. And God can help you. Don't do it on your own. Don't be left to your own will and discretion. Seek the help of others. Seek, seek the guidance of others. Take it slow. Yes, it might seem like things are horrible and you, you can't go on another day with this person. But you know what? God can change things. He can turn things around. If you seek his face earnestly through prayer, earnestly asking for help. And it's not shameful to ask for help in these situations. Because... It, it gives us a reason that we shine forth as, as Christ's kingdom when we, we demonstrate loving marriages for the sake of Christ and for his church. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do ask your help and your mercy. We pray that you would help us to truly embrace Jesus Christ by faith, that we would trust him as Lord and Savior and we do ask even for your forgiveness for so many ways that we have sinned against you. And Lord, in many ways that we've even, um, we've sinned and been hard and harsh and thoughtless at times regarding our spouses. In many such ways we have not loved our neighbors nor our spouses nearly as ourselves. We pray that you would forgive us for often placing our own fulfillment and satisfaction as supreme over what your holy word says and over what is the interest of others. Forgive us for these and many other sins, Lord, and we pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit, work in our lives, work in our marriages. We pray uh, for those even in our, in our congregation or who may be visiting our congregation. 
Lord, for their struggles in marriage, Lord, we pray that you would give them your help and peace, that you would, Lord, help them grow in their bond of love one for another, and you would help us, Lord, in our marriages, we pray to to be an illustration of the love of Christ, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ for the church. Help us in this, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. For our closing hymn, we'll turn to a uh, uh, closing psalm, 119N, as in Nancy. Your word sheds light upon my path. Let's stand and sing 119N.